Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37? Genesis 37, we want everybody to be able to look along at the passage we'll be considering. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one to you that's marked at that passage, easy to find, very first book of your Bible, and chapter 37. I don't know whether this still happens, but it used to be just a few years ago that if a Windows-based computer froze up, you would get what those in the Apple computer cult call the black screen of death. Is that what it's called? The blue screen of death. <laughs> Spoken from all the cultists in the, uh, in the crowd. And so the field on the screen just goes dark, goes blue, and you have to reboot. Now, not everyone who owns an Apple computer is part of the cult. People like me. I started using a Mac because I noticed that our church had attracted several cult members. <laughs> and I needed to interact with them electronically, chief among them our own Apple cult leader, Larry Castle. <laughs> In years since, we've added a number of others who have a distinct taste for Apple-flavored Kool-Aid. But amazingly, we've also added people who are Microsoft-certified technicians and they serve in our church side-by-side Mac people. Now, I consider this unity a spirit-wrought miracle, akin to the Jews and Gentiles in the early church. I noticed early on the glee with which the Apple types would speak of the frequency that Windows machines crash, and they brag that it never happens with a Mac. And sure enough, having owned a an Apple computer for all these years, I have never, never experienced the blue screen of death. Instead, when a Mac crashes, you get what I call the eternal rainbow-colored pinwheel from the abyss. <laughs> and my salespersons failed to mention that feature when I bought in. Now, my sermon is not about what computer or operating system is better. The truth is they all, they all, like all things in the material world, are affected by the fall and therefore they break. But I bring it up because whether it's the blue screen or the rainbow pinwheel, the truth is we all hate it. There are a few places that are worse to be than feeling as though you're spinning your wheels. That like your computer, if you haven't crashed, you're at a standstill in your life. Maybe something has happened to make it seem even worse. You're not just running in place. You've actually lost ground. And as you look at your life and circumstances, you might see a dark screen or a spinning wheel. And if you're moving at all, it's backwards. And you can't see any reason for the stuff that you've gone through to get to this particular place. And it seems that it's all brought you to a despondent place. Just one step from despair. Last week, we began a brief look at the life of Joseph. We saw a good bit about his upbringing and the favored status that he enjoyed in his family. There was every reason for Joseph to believe that his life would be onward and upward, one step at a time to a meaningful life and perhaps even a surpassingly great life. But it did not go as he undoubtedly thought it would. 
he came to a place where he found himself staring at the darkness of death. Not figuratively, to a momentary pause in his advance, literally a threat to his very life. And though his life was spared, it would be easy for Joseph to believe that his life was over. We saw last week that this favored son of his father Jacob, also called Israel, was not only not favored by his brothers, but he was despised by his brothers. For one thing, as we saw last week, his brothers were actually his, his half-brothers, not stepbrothers, as I mistakenly said last week. Chapter 37 and verse 2 highlights the fact that though they have the same father, Jacob, they have different mothers. It mentions uh, the mothers of some of the sons. And secondly, we saw last week that young Joseph disparaged his older brothers to their father. The end of verse 2 in chapter 37 says, Joseph brought their father a bad report about them. And I noted last week that it may be a false report, or at minimum, he's just tattling on what they're doing. And in addition to those two points of tension, verse 3 says, Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him, the so-called coat of many colors. And we noted last week that Joseph wore that coat apparently everywhere. In fact, he was wearing it when he went to seek out his brothers that we'll see later in chapter 37. And so he would kind of put that in, flaunt that in front of them apparently. And then finally he had these dreams, two dreams recorded in verses 5 through 12. Two different dreams that they each had the same meaning. And that meaning was that one day in the future, his brothers and even his father and mother were going to bow down before Joseph, who would rise above them. And he tells that story not once but twice, the interpretation of that dream to his, his brothers. And I said last week, he's inclined apparently to be haughty or pompous when he relates this dream. He's apparently rubbing it in. But Joseph, as we saw last week, went from this prideful, haughty young man to, as the story concludes in chapter 50 of Genesis, a humble, middle-aged man who treats his brothers with love and dignity despite the contempt that they showed for him. The question then is this. What happened? What happened in between what we read in chapter 37 and the man we see at the end of Genesis in chapter 50? What was it that God brought into Joseph's life so that the baggage that he brought into adulthood from his upbringing was transformed? And as we look today at some of what God did in the life of Joseph, it explains why I call this series of looking at characters in Scripture and how God worked in their lives, portraits of grace. Because it is God with each stroke of the brush, filling in the picture that is the life that he intended for each of those we're looking at, including Joseph. And that is what these chapters in between, chapter 37 and chapter 50, are all about. And that's where your life is this morning. All about what God is painting to make out of your life. And I don't know everybody here, and I certainly don't know the circumstances of everyone here. I do know this that all of us are between chapter 37 and chapter 50. Where we started out and where God is taking us.
your life and my life are between chapters 37, particularly beginning in verse 12, and chapter 50 and verse 20, the beginning of our life story and the purpose that God has for that life story. Some of you, perhaps many, can identify with what I said about being at a standstill, not moving forward, not seeing light ahead. But others of us are not presently in that situation. Perhaps you find yourself in a relatively good place, and you have no doubt that God is actively at work in your life. Well, to you I say this, praise God for that, but I encourage you to please tune in as we look at what God did in the life of Joseph. And here's why, dear friends. It can change oh so quickly. The blessed place that you are now should be used to build a reservoir of strength to sustain you when, not if, that dark night of the soul comes for you. And so I have said in the outline that's inserted in your program, we have three major points. We looked at two of those last week. If you weren't able to be here last week, I encourage you to listen to the recording that is on our website. But thirdly, I want us to see that not only first does everyone have baggage and that God redeems our, transforms our baggage, but now thirdly, God's providence is used in transforming our baggage. God's providence transforms our baggage. Let's ask God to help us as we look at how he did that in the life of Joseph. Father, thank you for this sacred hour. We thank you for meeting with us already. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom to be here, to praise you, to, to meet together without fear of government intrusion. We thank you that your spirit has placed in us a desire to be here, to perhaps overcome a number of obstacles in order to be here with your people, to praise your name and to learn of you. And so, Lord, we come to your word now with open hearts. Help us to have attentive minds and help us to leave this place better equipped to bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God's providence, I say, transforms the baggage that all of us have. We acquire good and bad that we bring with us through life. In the story of Joseph, we see God at work in ways that Joseph could not see. And God working in ways we cannot see is what we call his God's providence. The root of that word providence is provides. God is the one who provides. That is, God is the one by whom all things ultimately come. All things are ultimately provided by God. And so providence is the means by which God directs all things, good, bad, and ugly, for his ultimate purpose, namely his own glory. Or to put it in the language of last week's message, God is providentially at work in the lives of his people to make us like Jesus. He's at work in our lives both directly and also indirectly. And that's why one of the more famous verses in the Bible says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now notice it says, we know that in all things God works. Some of you have heard me say in the past that some translations of that say, we know that, uh, that, that all things 
work together for good to those who love God. All things work together for good. But this passage is, rightly translates it, all thi- in all things God works. You see, it's not that things just work by themselves. Namely, the subject is God, and God is the one who works all things. And so when I said in that definition of providence, it is God directing all things toward his appointed ultimate end of bringing glory to himself, all things good, bad, and ugly, that comes from Romans 8.28. God is working how many things? All of them. All things. And so I say in your outline this then. God uses bad things. In fact, in the outline it says bad good. Only... only Pastors can talk like that. Probably rappers as well, but they can talk any way they want, and it's supposed to make sense. But God uses bad good. And I have that in quotation marks. Here's why. It's actually a modification of something that a man, a theologian named John Gerstner, has said for years in categorizing the activities of God. And he has categorized them actually in four categories. I've condensed them to two. The first of those categories is is bad good. Now, why? The reason that first use that God makes of events in our lives has the word good. And then if you look at B in your outline, we'll fill in the blank in a moment, but it also has good. Both of them are good. This one is bad good. But the reason they're both good, it's because... Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for what? For good. And so the outcome is going to be good, but God uses difficulty, even bad things, even evil things, to produce this good. And that's what's meant when I say God uses bad good. And in the life of Joseph, there are at least three episodes of bad that God uses for good. In chapter 37, beginning in verse 12, the Bible tells us that the brothers, Joseph, 10 of Joseph's brothers, have gone out with their, their flocks to a place called Shechem. And the reason that they are in this place called Shechem, which is 50 miles from where Joseph is and where Jacob is, the other 10 have gone 50 miles away to this place called Shechem. The reason is they were, they were nomads, and they would move their flocks from one area to another for water and for grazing. And then verse 13 tells us the fact that Jacob wants to send Joseph to check on his brothers to see if all is well with, with them. They've been gone for a while, and so he wants to, to check on, on them. Verse 14 tells us where Jacob and Joseph are. They're in the Valley of Hebron. And as I say, Hebron is about 50 miles from, uh, from Shechem. So a long journey for young Joseph. And yet in verse 13, Jacob asks Joseph, in fact, tells Joseph to go. And Joseph is eager to go. Verse 13, he says, very well. Or some translations say, here I am. No protest at all. Now, don't let that go by quickly. Because Jacob's willingness to send Joseph and Joseph's willingness to to go without any protest at all indicates that probably neither of them understands the depth of hostility that the brothers have toward Joseph. So what does that tell you about the brothers? We've already seen earlier in the chapter they hate him. They, They absolutely despise him. But they've apparently been able to conceal that enough 
around dad. But they're 50 miles away. We're not around dad anymore. And we're going to see what transpires now that the restraint of their father apparently had upon their evil intent for Joseph. It all now comes loose. There's a lesson for us in that, dear friends. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. In one set of circumstances, you may be doing fine. But God often puts us in circumstances that remove the restraints, that reveal recesses of our hearts that sometimes we didn't even know were there. And that's what's going to happen now with Joseph's brothers. We have in our legal system this idea that people are innocent due to temporary insanity. You guys have heard that? In Canada, they've got a thing called not criminally responsible. And in Canada, people really, they just, it's a, it's a big scandal there. Just people get away with murder. Because at the time they did something, they were deemed to be not criminally responsible. But just like Joseph's brothers, listen, we often harbor things that only require the right time and circumstances to unleash those. And what we often make the mistake of doing is confusing the occasion with the cause. The occasion is not the first time that those brothers hated Joseph, as we've seen in chapter 37. They've hated him all along, and now the opportunity is going to present itself. And so in verses 15 through 17, the Bible says Joseph goes to Shechem seeking his brothers. He's told there by a man that they've left Shechem, and they've gone to a place called Dothan. Well, Dothan's another 13 miles away. And so now Joseph and his brothers are going to be over 60 miles away from where their father Jacob is. And Joseph goes there intent on fulfilling the desire of his father to check on them. Verse 18 says this. They saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And they're out there in Dothan. They see Joseph at a distance. Now, how do they see Joseph at a distance? I got this cool coat. And they see him at a distance, and as they see him, now the hatred is going to boil over, and immediately they begin to plot to kill him. Verse 19 says that they called him this dreamer, the NIV says. But it's, it, it, the phrase that's translated this dreamer means this Lord of dreams. Here comes this Lord of dreams. They're mocking and insulting him. Their hatred for Joseph has now reached a breaking point. And so the first of these incidents of bad that God is going to use for good is Joseph's encounter with his brothers. And if you were to read on in the story, and most of you know the story, they plot a few different things, but it's to get rid of him. First, it's to kill him. And then they decide to make some money off him. They sell him into, into slavery. Some Midianites, also called Ishmaelites, come along. They get 20 shekels of silver for his, for his uh, slavery. And they leave him for slavery and probably death. That's the first instance of the bad good that God brings into J- Joseph's life. Another and I'll just encourage you to read this on your own, is in chapter 39. 
beginning in verse 6 through 18. Chapter 39, verse 6 through 18, where in God's providence, directing the affairs of this man's life, though he is sold into slavery, he finds himself being sold ultimately by these Midianites into the employ of a man named Potiphar, who is a high official in the court of the Egyptian pharaoh. And so Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house. This is a very fortuitous thing, except that Potiphar's wife desires Joseph. In chapter 39, beginning in verse 6 through 18, tells the story of her attempt to seduce him. He resists her advances. She sets him up as if he has advanced toward her, in fact, even attacked her. She shows that to her husband, Potiphar, the evidence of that to her husband, Potiphar, and Joseph is thrown in jail in prison. And then the third incident of bad good in the life of Joseph is found while he is in prison. He meets there a cupbearer and a baker who have been put in prison uh, by Pharaoh. And chapter 40 tells us that the cupbearer has a dream. And Joseph is able to interpret the dream And the interpretation of the dream is that in just a few days, you, cupbearer, are going to be released from prison. And when you are released from prison, here's what I want you to do. Tell Pharaoh about me. Because I've been languishing here now for a few years, and I want Pharaoh to know that that I'm here and that I'm willing to to serve and to use the abilities God has given me in his his service. But the cupbearer... Gets his freedom, just as predicted, and he immediately forgets about Joseph. And as a result, Joseph languished in prison for years. Literally forgotten, thought dead by his father, and hoped and assumed dead by his brothers. Well, that's what you get for serving God. All of these bad things happen in in Joseph's life. He began serving Pharaoh, ultimately, because he interpreted a dream of Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer did him no good initially, but a little bit later, Pharaoh had a dream. The cupbearer remembered this interpreter of dreams named Joseph, called him to Pharaoh's attention, and Pharaoh brought Joseph into his employ, beginning at the age of 30 for Joseph. He next sees his brothers when he is 38. Because the dream that he interprets for Pharaoh is that there are going to be seven years of famine, or excuse me, seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. The seven years of plenty go by, Joseph is 37, and then when he is 38, the famine hits, and that's when his brothers come to Egypt looking for, looking for food. And it's been about 20 years that have passed since they have seen their brother. But all of this now, friends, has a bigger picture. This is how the Israelites wind up in Egypt and become a great nation. It's because of all of this in the life of Joseph and then God ultimately working through this time of plenty and famine that he brings Jacob and his sons to Egypt. They settle there and over a number of years this becomes a great nation and we are going to see probably beginning next week a look at Moses and how a pharaoh arose who did not remember Joseph, and how God used that in his plan of redemption. Now, 
These are those three incidents of bad good in the life of Joseph. He's got the hatred of his brothers and what they did in selling him treacherously into slavery. He's got the, the conspiring of Potiphar's wife. And then he has the forgetfulness of the cupbearer leaving him forgotten in prison. And yet all of this God weaves together to ultimately work out for good. And so if you're the cupbearer, can you take credit for any of this? If you're the Midianites who bought him out of slavery, or if you're the brothers who sold him into slavery, all of this ultimately works out for good. They could all say, hey, we get some credit for that. Potiphar's wife could say he was made a better man as he languished in prison, and that was all because of me. You see, all of these people are still responsible for their evil deeds because here's a principle that you need to understand and carry with you throughout the rest of your life. Everybody works for God. Even those who don't intend to. Everybody works for God. Potiphar's wife, in God's mysterious providence, in her evil, in her bad, was being used by God to produce this ultimate good. Pharaoh doesn't intend to work for God, but Pharaoh is doing God's bidding by what he does with God's people when they ultimately settle in Goshen in Egypt, as we will see. Everybody works for God. And at every moment of every day in every circumstance that you have in your life, with all of the difficulty... With all of the trial, understand that everything and everyone is working for God's ultimate good end. And that's how then you can face that thing that you're going through or that thing that you will go through because you know that everybody works for God and everything works for God's ends. But the problem for us is this, isn't it? We want to know it's moving forward and we want to see it now. But faith sees it before it happens. Faith believes God's at work. Ultimately, I will see how he is at work. But I may not see it now. And faith then sees that God is at work even though I don't know the precise results. I recently read the review of a book that contains the story of a small town along the Swiss and Italian borders of France. It's a town called... Les Chambeau, I think. And it said, For many centuries, the area has been home to dissident Protestant groups, principally the Huguenots. Some of you know them from church history. And during the Nazi occupation of France in the 1940s, Les Chambeau became a very open and central pocket of resistance against the Nazis. On the Sunday after France fell to Germany, the local Huguenot pastor preached a sermon in which he said that if the Germans made the town folk do anything that they considered contrary to the gospel, the town wasn't going to go along. So the school children refused to give the fascist salute each morning as the new government had decreed they should. The occupation rulers required teachers to sign an oath of loyalty to the state, but the pastor ran the school and he instructed the staff not to do it. Before long, Jewish refugees who were on the run from the Nazis heard of Les Chambeaux, and they began to show up looking for help. The townsfolk took them in, they fed them, they hid them and spirited them across borders. That was all in open defiance of Nazi law. 
Once when a high government official came to town, a group of students actually presented him with a letter that stated plainly and honestly the town's opposition to the anti-Jewish policies of the occupation. That letter said, We feel obligated to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But make no mistake that we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, received the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. And the question is, where did these people of Les Chambeaux find the strength to defy the Nazis in World War II? Hear this, friends. They were armed with the weapons of the Spirit. For over a hundred years, in the 1600s and 1700s, they had been ruthlessly persecuted by the state. Huguenot pastors had been hanged and tortured. Their wives sent to prison. Their children taken from them. They had learned how to hide in the forest and escape to Switzerland and conduct their services in secrecy. They had learned how to stick together. They saw just about the worst kind of persecution anyone can see. And what was it that they discovered in all of that? that the strength granted to them by their faith in God gave them the power to stand up to the soldiers and guns and laws of the state. In one of the many books written by, about that town, Le Chambeau, there's an extraordinary line in it from this pastor's wife. When the first refugee appeared at her door in the bleakest part of the war during the long winter of 1941, she said it never occurred to her to say no. I did not know that it would be dangerous. Nobody thought of that. Why did nobody think of that? Because God had been preparing for that moment for centuries. And the people who had faithfully stood for God in the face of persecution, not knowing why that persecution is happening, not knowing the good ultimate end that God has in this, dying without being able to see it, only being able to see it through the eyes of faith. But it is because of that legacy that their children and children's children were able to stand up when called to stand. God uses bad for good. And the eyes of faith see that even when we don't know the precise result. And how does he do it? I say in your outline. He uses this bad in a couple of ways. One is for corrective discipline. Corrective discipline. Now, if you were here last week, we set up the scene, the narrative with Joseph to show that Joseph was a guy who, in a sense, sort of had it coming. Now, in a sense. doesn't mean it's okay for his brothers to plot to kill him, sell him into slavery. They're guilty. But Joseph was pompous, and he was haughty, and he didn't help matters. And if Joseph was going to be used by God as he was ultimately, Joseph needed to learn some things. He needed some corrective discipline. And what we see in chapter 50, in the complete change of attitude from pompous and haughty and proud to humble and loving toward his brothers is because God brought this corrective discipline into his life. And friends, God brings that corrective discipline into our lives. I gave you an illustration of that in my own life at the end of the message last week. 
God knows what I need to learn. God knows the recesses of my heart and your heart. He knows exactly what you need to be corrected of as you think about yourself and others and him in erroneous ways. God personalizes this discipline to transform the struggles that we have. And that's precisely what he did with Joseph. And this is why I call these portraits of grace, because it's God graciously working in the lives of his people. And this corrective discipline is what I call this. It's restorative and it's preparatory. Restorative and preparatory. Now, do you know what I mean by that? You see, God is not just punishing. God's correcting in order to restore, in order to in turn prepare us for other and greater work. Now, if you're awake and you're listening, that should raise a question. Does that mean when bad things come into my life that God is correcting me because I've done something wrong or I harbor some evil in my heart? And the answer to that is not necessarily. Bad things happen simply because we live in a fallen world. And we see this in the New Testament in an incident in the life of Jesus. John chapter 9, the Bible says, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now notice the assumption in their question. Something bad has happened, therefore he must have done something or his parents must have done something in order for him to deserve this particular fate. So they were taking the same approach as Job's good-for-nothing friends. You remember Job. And Job had all of these bad things befall him. And so Job's friends come and say, Job, you've got to have a girlfriend on the side. You've got to be stealing some money. There must be something going on in your life to cause these things to happen. So they ask that question based on the same assumption of Job's friends. And Jesus says this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, here's why I want to hit that and then move on. Because there are some in this room, undoubtedly, who have gone through evil in your lives that was foisted upon you by people who were in positions of authority and you were vulnerable. There are people in this room who have been abused. And you may, if we're not careful, come away thinking, that happened to me because somehow I deserved that. And God is not executing corrective discipline on one who is in this vulnerable position as if there is a one-to-one, a tit-for-tat with every cause and effect that goes on in the evil that we experience. Some of you have been genuinely victimized. And we need to call it that and call to account those who have victimized But God does use, as he did in the life of Joseph, as he has in my life, and as he does at times in all of our lives, corrective discipline. He uses a second kind of discipline as well. I have that in your outline. It's called formative discipline. Corrective discipline and then formative discipline. Corrective is to correct and restore and then then to prepare. But formative is, not that I've done any particular thing wrong that brings 
about this particular circumstance in my life, but rather God is allowing now this into my life to form me, to shape me, to prepare me for future work. Formative discipline. Now, before we move further, I should define that word discipline. When we think of discipline, we think of punishment right away. But discipline is actually in the Bible, in your New Testament, the same word for training. Discipline, training. It's related to the word for disciple. And so God is, by these events, forming us, shaping us, discipling us, growing us, training us. And so we have this word in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Train yourself to be godly. That is, same word for discipline yourself to be godly. The book of Proverbs speaks of the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Famously in James chapter 1, many of you are familiar with James' words, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now that's not saying that God is doing, allowing these circumstances into your life as a corrective for something you've done. This is for him to shape us now so that we are complete, not lacking anything. That's this formative training, this formative discipline. The Bible says the same thing of the wandering in the wilderness. That yes, there were things that needed certainly to be corrected by the disobedience of the the Israelites. But a large portion of what God allowed in the wandering in the wilderness was formative, shaping them for what would come in the future. Deuteronomy 8 He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Psalm 66 says, You, O God, tested us, refined us like silver. You brought us into prison, laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. And then lastly, Job said famously, He, God, knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will be shaped, I will be formed. I will come forth as gold. So corrective discipline, I said, is restorative and preparatory. It's restoring us, correcting some issue that that we have. But formative discipline is not restoring because we haven't necessarily fallen. It's rather preventative and preparatory. God is shaping us and forming us now to prepare us for his future calling, the future circumstances he's going to bring into our lives, and to prevent us then from falling. There are both kinds of discipline, corrective and formative. Now I say in your outline, God uses those things. God uses bad good. He uses corrective. He uses formative discipline. So when I say God uses... Don't you see that in the story of Joseph? (laughs) God's the one who gives Joseph the dream, the dreams, plural, that he then tells to his brothers that incite the brothers to hatred. God gave him the dream. God's providence does this, friends. It puts people in situations that will reveal God puts people in situations that will reveal them. This is what is meant, as we will see when we look at Moses and his interaction with Pharaoh. 
when the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He placed Pharaoh in a situation where Pharaoh's heart would expose itself. And that is why Jesus said, when you pray, pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. Oh, dear God, I need you to protect me from situations where I am so vulnerable to falling, situations I know nothing about. And so we ask the sovereign control of God who uses correction and uses formation shaping us in order to restore, but also in order to prevent what can come our way because of our vulnerable hearts. So God uses bad good. I say be in your outline. He also uses, as you might guess, good good. The second good is the result. But this is God getting to the result through good things. This is God maintaining and enhancing the good baggage that we all have. Remember, we all bring baggage. Everybody has baggage. We tend to focus on the the negative baggage that we all have. But the truth is we are made in the image of God. We are all gifted in particular ways. And we all have some, we have good baggage that we bring into our endeavors and as we go through life. And so God brings good circumstances that maintain and enhance those good things. And so Joseph. Joseph had learned how to, how to manage. He had learned, brought that good baggage with him. It's very evident. As the Bible says, when he was in prison... He was running the place. When he was in Potiphar's house, he was running the place. When he was in Pharaoh's employ, Pharaoh trusted him completely to run the land of of Egypt. And so these episodes of good in Joseph's life are numerous. I'm just going to mention them quickly so that we can move on. But God brings this good into, into his life through the intervention of Judah, for example, one of his brothers who says, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery. And it happened, just so happened, that there were some Midianites and Ishmaelites coming along. This is God working good, good into his life, good circumstances into his life. It so happens that it's fortuitous that he's sold to a high Egyptian official named named Potiphar. God's blessing is on Joseph in Potiphar's house, chapter 39. It is good, good in God's God's sovereign control of Joseph's circumstances that Potiphar did not have him killed when he believed that he committed adultery or, or attacked his wife because that would be the normal punishment, but rather had him put in prison. It is God's sovereign good, good in the life of Joseph that he prospered in prison. That Pharaoh has a dream that God gives to him that he can't interpret and that this cupbearer remembers Joseph languishing in prison. And Pharaoh sins for Joseph in God's good, good in his life, and he interprets the dream, and he is put in charge of all of Egypt the end of chapter 49. His interpretation of the dream comes true, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. God uses bad good, and God uses good good, and so it's all good. From the Christian standpoint, ultimately, it's all good. 
Doesn't mean it's okay for Joseph's brothers, for Pharaoh, for Potiphar's wife, for the cupbearer. Doesn't mean it's okay. They'll all be held responsible. But from the Christian standpoint, because God is working all things together for good in our lives, then we can truly say that ultimately it is all good. So I say in your outline, God uses these good circumstances in our lives to produce both good character and good behavior. And you see that in the life of Joseph. The character tested in the incident with Potiphar's wife. The behavior and the way he went about his business in the employee of both Potiphar and of Pharaoh. And in your take-home truth at the bottom of your outline. In this story of the life of Joseph, please understand, friends, God works in all our circumstances for the purpose of ultimately making us like Jesus. All of our circumstances, good and bad, Now, we're almost done, so ignore whatever's happening. Brothers and sisters, you can know that God's ultimately good providence is at work in your life, even when you can't see it. That at every moment of every day, God is moving us forward to make us like Christ teaching us to trust, to believe, to have faith in what I cannot see. Therefore, in the life of the Christian, there are no meaningless moments. There is not a meaningless minute, not a meaningless second in the life of the one who belongs to Jesus. Every second of your life is imbued with purpose. In the story of Joseph, over and over again, we're told, and God was with him. God was with him. Then other times it's not stated, it's assumed. But Almighty God has stated that in his word, friends, as a promise to us, and he is with us. Is God, if God is for us, who can be against us? And therefore, even when it's not stated, it is always the case that God is with us. And that God is using the good and the bad and everything in between in order to correct us as needed, in order to form us as needed, in order to make us like Jesus. And that includes everything that has happened and is happening and will happen in your life. And so I ask you, what is that? And I ask you through the eyes of faith to say, oh Lord, I believe you're at work. I believe you're at work making me, shaping me to be like Jesus. Now, the only person who can say that is the person who has a relationship with God through Jesus. The only person who has a transformed heart who wants to say that is the person that God has reformed to be and is reforming to be like Jesus. So we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And offer any of you in this room who have never come to God through Jesus, God the Son, to have the opportunity to do that. How do you do that? Acknowledge who you are. That is, you're a sinner. Acknowledge who He is. He is God having come to do what you could not do for yourself. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you deserve. 
and you repent of your sin. God, I'm going to follow you with my life. And even though I don't understand, like I'm sure Joseph did not understand as he languished in prison, but as he thought and he was able to pull from the reservoir of what he had been taught as a young man, taught in God's word, he's able to, he's able to pull together the, the faith that God is forming in him and with the eyes of faith, able to see what has not been actualized. And Lord, I repent of only living with, for what I can see. I'm now going to follow you and trust you completely with my life. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? You pray a prayer from your heart to God. No magic incantation, your own words, something like's on the screen. And you ask Jesus to forgive you, to save you. You give your life to him. Lord, I want to follow you with my life. You died for my sin on the cross, and you lived the life that I deserve, that I should have lived. For those of us who are believers, let's bow together before the Lord. And let's thank God for his sovereign, providential work in our lives, the good and the bad and everything in between. Our Father, I am humbled, we are humbled by the story of your servant Joseph and how you worked in his life. And Lord, we see so many parallels there to the things you allow and the things you bring into our lives. Lord, we forget that you're at work. I forget. And in the moment, I react then, and I react faithlessly. Lord, I am sure that there are brothers and sisters here who do the same thing, struggle with the same thing, and some struggling with, with chronic faithlessness because of difficulties that they do not understand. Oh, God, help us to see through the eyes of faith that every moment of every day is in your sovereign hand and that you are providentially working out your purposes in our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work on the hearts of anyone here, on the hearts of any here, who have not come to Jesus Christ, believing who he is, God the Son, and what he did, dying on the cross for them and living a perfectly righteous life, both of which can be theirs for the asking. We ask you to draw them out of the world and to yourself. And may you glorify yourself in each one of us with every circumstance you allow into our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.